This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Coach Jason and I are back to discuss UFC 274, specifically one fight from UFC 274, which was the main event for the lightweight championship between Charles Dubronx Oliveira versus Justin Gaethje. Now, Dubronx was stripped of his title due to missing weight and title fights having no one-pound allowance, as well as some controversy with unofficial scales being miscalibrated. For historical context, George St. Pierre also missed weight by the same amount, half a pound, in his title fight against Nick Diaz, but the Canadian Athletic Commission had different rules, along with the UFC being the promoter and the commissioner, so GSP was allowed to keep the title. Also, MMA writer Trent Reinsmith brought up how Dana White had publicly stated if Al Iaquinta beats Habib Nurmagomedov in their title fight, even though Iaquinta missed weight, he'd still be champ. So read into that what you will in context of Du Bronx being stripped. Now, I also have to mention we also had another big fight this weekend. Canelo Alvarez versus Dimitri Bivol. It was an exciting fight, but mostly one-sided with Bivol winning by unanimous decision. Bivol was too big and too good, and this might be too heavy for Canelo. Bivol said he felt Canelo's power, but it didn't feel like a light heavyweight power puncher. Bivol said his strategy was to make Canelo tired because Canelo likes to throw power in every shot. So his plan was to make Canelo throw more punches than usual than countering him, which is what he did. Bivol landed 152 punches to Canelo's 84. Canelo couldn't keep up and seemed sluggish at this weight. Dimitri Bivol is still undefeated and just really, really good. Now with the UFC main event, Du Bronx beat Gaethje in round one after dropping Gaethje, then finishing by rear choke to become the number one contender. Overall, it was a bad night for Team Whitman. Now, even though this fight was short, a lot happened and there's so much to analyze in Oliveira fights. He's so technically sound and he's had some of the best title fights in all of combat sports. This fight was back and forth, but really it seemed like Oliveira was wearing the damage but I think both fighters handle being rocked differently. Gaethje gets rocked, but tries to stay on his feet and keep swinging, whereas Dubronx seems to be willing to go to his guard for safety. I don't mean that he's baiting people or he's pretending to be hurt. I think when he's hurt, his instinct is to fall to guard. I think that's part of how he's been recovering when he used to get finished. If there's the potential in such an abbreviated time frame, for evolution to step in and adapt a fighter's chin or brain or fight or flight response to trauma, you know, we're seeing it in real time with Charles Oliveira. And it, it, it's really astounding, honestly. It's like after Oliveira gets tagged and hurt, rather than brawling and putting himself in position to get clipped with second and third shots, Dobrox's uh, brain says, lay down for a second <laughs> and let me do a quick situation analysis. And Oliveira's body says, okay. Fuck it. What's the worst that could happen? This guy's going to jump in my guard. You know, so it's it. He puts himself in a situation where he's out of harm's way, 
it looks terrible on the scorecards, mind you, right? But like he's allowing his brain to recover. He's put himself in a much less vulnerable position. And if someone follows him to the ground, they've just put themselves in a, a more vulnerable position. So like tactically it's it's actually fantastic, <laughs> which is, is really bizarre. It seems like autopilot, right? Like he's hurt and then his autopilot kicks in and it's like, okay, go to guard and recover. Yeah, it's like and then the body's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I feel you. Like we're really good in the guard. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, it's not a bad thing. Trust me. Just take, just trust me. We're good here. And so, and I think you texted me. Yeah, he he seems to like roll to his back rather than get dropped and just like completely lose all control of his of his faculties. So he, it's like rather than put himself which is the complete opposite of what gagey does right when gagey gets hit his response is to hit hit back harder as many times as he can and wild and heavy um Oliveira says hey i, I gotta my brain wants to take me out of this and listen to my brain and the body's like all right man let's play in the guard for a little bit come on come on come to my guard <laughs> and most people don't oblige so it gives him that that time to recover and the brain does a little situation analysis and then uh, you know reboots and he gets back up and Seems not to miss a beat. Yeah, because even when he falls, he doesn't smack the back of his head, right? His hand is like on the back of his head to make sure the back of his head is protected. And he's immediately aiming his feet towards his opponent and readjusting so that the opponent can't just rush him and pass his guard. Yeah, it's like his his brain is saying, hey, like, we're not going to handle severe, severe trauma so that we can't make the appropriate calculations later on down the road. We need to take stock of the damage that's done. It was like a Star Trek. Like, uh, <laughs> what are our shields at? Like, forty percent capacity. <laughs> what's our damage? Uh, all that, you know. What's where's where's our oxygen? All those things to be considered, and it 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 takes him out of the fight for a moment, just enough that he can he can recover. And you, for someone who used to get hit and try to fight through it, or he would get hit and I don't want to say he would bail because I don't want to even go down that road with that narrative anymore. Um, but it, he puts himself in a position where he can, he can recover. And if someone doesn't want to give him that recovery time and wants to be hasty in their attack, well, they all they'll probably end up in his guard. Uh, he's a fucking handful there anyway. It seems like the BJJ version of what wrestlers do. We're so used to wrestlers when they get rocked or dropped their autopilot is to shoot for takedowns. Like they don't even know that they're shooting. Their just body takes over. We're so used to that. We don't question that. Whereas we're not as used to seeing this, but it's the same type of trained response. It's just different grappling sports. Right. And it's different directionally too. So one is coming down and going forward and into their opponent. The other is going back in a way which tends to look a little worse. But if you think about it, you're actually creating more space in your head is the farthest point from your opponent which again going back to like a protective evolutionary concept your brain is the furthest from your attacker that's probably good and it's such an odd thing to see especially in that second knockdown where his body just tried to stay up and then it said no like, get into my guard get into my guard come to me come into my guard i mean there's some wrestlers if they were willing to pull guard they would have not gotten finished. I'm thinking about like TJ Dillashaw where he got rocked a bunch of times and he immediately tried to get up or shoot 
instead of pulling guard. I'm thinking about Dominic Cruz, the same thing where they will never go to their back. They just keep trying to fight back up or get the takedown. And if they would have been willing to pull guard, I think they would have survived. I don't know if they would have won, but at least survived that scenario. It's something fighters in the past, I think, were much more willing to do is to pull guard if they needed to and survive. Right. And I think it's it's a perfect point. And it doesn't have to be a full guard. Wrestlers are so good from that single leg position. If you go into like a deep half and you pull and you drop down and you have that underhook position and you can't sweep, but you can come up into a single leg position. You can continue to wrestle from there while not getting blasted with elbows while you're sticking your head in, in the, the belly or the crotch of the, uh, your opponent. And he's just hammering you with those elbows while the cage is holding him up. So there's a little more strategy involved. And I think you got to take, take stock into what, um, what path is available to you and not be so uh, dug in on I'm a wrestler, I wrestle. Well, I mean, there's a lot of tools out there. And you want to use whatever is at your disposal and may be advantageous given the situation. I think it's also what's changed since back then is now it's understood if you're on your back, you're losing. Whereas now, even if you get dropped, if you can immediately get back up, it's not that big of a deal. It's getting dropped and being on your back and staying the rest of the round on your back looks really bad on the judge's card. So I think that's part of what's changed back then. Post the Mark Coleman era, there was a little time period where being on your guard didn't necessarily mean you were losing. But now we've pivoted the other way where nobody wants to be on their back anymore. Yeah, but I mean, with with seeing some of the wrestlers who would start to gas out from that top position and just eat elbow after elbow while not doing any damage, there was some cognitive dissonance, I think, just from everyone looking at it. Like, yes, one guy is on top for three and a half minutes, but he is getting elbowed in the top of his head. <laughs> The entire time, I think that at some point that would really fucking hurt. So, like, could we give him the round? Should we give him the round? No. And then we get into the debate. Well, if the headbutts were legal. Well, yeah, there's a whole lot of things to consider. But you know, if if you're if, regardless of the position, I love the wrestlers, man. I know my bias. Uh, but if you're not in a position to do damage um, and you're not be, being able to consistently work, then you know all right, I'll give you a little bit of a nod for being able to put the fight where you want it, but if you can't do anything from that position and your opponent can, well, unfortunately, you're losing. And that's that's the way it should be. I'm thinking of the title fight, interim title fight, between Tony Ferguson versus Kevin Lee, where Kevin Lee got the takedown. But to your point, Tony Ferguson was fucking him up from the bottom and I think was rocking him with elbows from the bottom, which is how he got the triangle because... Kevin Lee was so dazed, even though he was on top. That's a that's a perfect example. Another really good one. I don't know if you if it's in the UFC's uh, Fight Pass library is Felder versus Julian Lane. Uh, it was a, it was actually a pretty close fight, but when Felder did get taken down, he uh, he did. I don't want. He he just sort of pushed back, tried to get up, and then whenever Julian kept burying his head in his chest. Felder would just do enough to push the head away to throw an elbow. And then whenever Julian would posture up, hands on the mat, Felder would take an overhook and then just start dropping elbows. And he hit a ton of them in a round that he was on the bottom of. And that was, I think, the swing round in the fight. And that uh, I think that gave Felder a lot of confidence to know that he could hang with just about anyone physically at that, at that level. And there have been times where somebody was able to rock an opponent while on their back with an elbow. What comes to mind is Joe Riggs versus Chris Lytle, where 
Joe Riggs palmed him and then elbowed him. And he wasn't out, out, but he was like hurt. And then the gash on his head was so big, they had to stop the fight. So those types of things do happen. Yeah, it's just continuing to fight in situations, fight through situations rather than than hold position. And bringing it back to Oliveira, I think that's what you're starting to see him do so well, even tangentially on his feet, all in those those muddy situations where it's either like a clinch to uh, like a wrestling situation. Anytime someone is pulled up, he has a continuation of offense, whether it's a knee, whether it's an elbow, whether it's just fighting for head position. And if you if you understand like the true nuance of fight dynamics, it's actually really fucking pretty to watch. Now, right off the bat, Dubron seemed to have the upper hand. Then he began to get blasted and cut open. How was Gaethje finding those shots? Well, I think I touched on it a little bit before. It's Gaethje's response to being hit is to hit back and hit back hard, usually with powerful stuff and mixed in a low kick. Everyone's about rinse and repeat. You know, that's Gaethje's. Gagey's success was really built off of his ability to respond to Oliveira's success. So Oliveira would find a nice tight right hand, and then you know uh, Gagey would come back with multiple hooks. But in in the pocket, Oliveira's defense isn't superb, and that's not so much a knock on on Dubronx as it is just fight dynamics with smaller gloves and a risk reward calculation of being that offensive in close range. And with the smaller MMA gloves, it's a lot easier for the hooks that Gagey throws to find their mark in between the biceps and the forearm. We call it punching on the V. And when Gagey gets hit, his response is to hit back. And he'll throw hook, hook. And then if one of those hooks misses, he pulls down the collar tie and he throws the uppercut. And that's that's what you start to see um, like Gagey is able to, to find success with. But there's a vulnerability in that too, punching wide and reaching. And, you know, that's, um, I think, once Dubronk started to pick up on some of those wide shots and wasn't there for him. I mean, but let's be honest, he was there for him at least twice in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, what did you call it? Hooking off the V? Punching on the V. So if, my, if, if I got a high guard, right, and my, my wrist, where my palm would be, where you would take my pulse, is on my ear, the, L, the forearm and the bicep, make a V. So regardless of how big that bicep muscle is going to be, if you punch around punch through that biceps in between it and the forearm, you, know, you can still make contact even though it looks like someone has a nice tight high guard. There's a gap in the V. Yep, there's a gap in the V and boxing gloves don't really get through it that well because they're a lot bigger, greater surface area. With a smaller surface area, there's less to protect the head and the chin and there's a smaller a smaller projectile in the fist to fit through that, that larger opening. But then we saw Oliveira adjust and then begin to shut Gaethje down. How did he do that? Well, one thing I noticed in the second half of the round was that Charles stopped hitting that left collar tie to the right uppercut, and it made it, it, made it less vulnerable for, for Gaethje to bomb that, that left hook. And that's another opportunity to score. You're not necessarily punching on the V, but there's still a V in the arm when you're throwing that uppercut where if, even if your chin's tucked below your uh, below your shoulder, your ear and your your um, your orbital and the whole up, upper half of your face and head are wide open. So you know, pulling on that, knowing that left hook from Gagey is the money shot, pulling on that head and throwing that upper hook was getting him hit early. 
And in the second half of the fight, which it was a one round fight that went only what three or four minutes, when he stopped doing that in close range, it was harder for uh, for Gagey to find that shot. And also, the straight kicks and knees to the body started to wear on Gagey. And it's really hard. It's really hard to tell because Gagey has that Tasmanian devil style where he's just <laughs> constantly coming forward, right? Constantly bombing on you. But he started giving a little ground to reset before trying to bomb on Bronx. And as visually impaired as Oliveira is, he still saw some of that shit coming. So that that was some. Those were some of the adjustments that I think Oliveira made based on being able to score to the body. In the first ten seconds, he threw like those real nice knees after he clipped uh, Gagey. And then he was just walking him down with those front kicks, just stabbing him. And then normally Gagey tries to continue to walk forward, but he was doing this little thing where he would like widen his arms, take a step back and breathe. Probably being a little bit too tough for his own good because, because Oliveira was just, you know, just touching him with the toes to the belly over and over and over. And whether or not uh, Gagey shows it, I think that, that that started to wear on him a bit. To your point about the vision, I feel like both fighters have poor vision and they've both adjusted to it differently. Gaethje uses his kicks to find his opponents and uses kind of a pushing range finding jab to aim his right. His jab isn't so effective, but it helps him figure out where his opponent is for the right hand. But when he misses any of his punches, it looks bad because he's throwing blind. So even if you're not putting 100% into something, but you're swinging a punch and nothing's there, then it's going to look bad, right? Dobronx also can't see, but he does a lot more of what Gaethje used to do in the past, which was rely on the high guard to feel your opponent's punches to find them. So basically, the more you attack him, the more information Dobronx is getting. And also relying on collar ties, which you brought up, to feel where the opponent is. Also using that front kick to find his opponent. But what Oliveira does that's nice is when he does get a collar tie, he begins to direct you. He kind of moves you around to where he wants you to be, but also uses you as a pivot point to move himself. And he mixes in knees with zero thought. It just automatically comes up. And when he's that close, every attack seems to help him see. The collar tie helps him aim the knee. The knee tells him where to aim the hook and so on. Gaethje also automatically went for collar ties in this fight and also in general, but his main go-to is to throw uppercuts. But as soon as they tied up, it was apparent that Oliveira was the better fighter in the clinch. Gaethje did find some shots early on, but it seemed like the more they got to the clinch, the more it favored Oliveira. Yeah, Oliveira just has more tools in his toolbox. And I think with um, with with what you said about Gagey and his visual vision problems, I think there's a combination of factors going on in this fight in particular. Right? Sometimes he was putting too much into the shot, not settling down and taking aim and punching back like that when you're rocked uh, or when you're a little bit compromised to the body uh, is not the easiest thing to keep your balance when your brain trains off track and you're getting jacked with multiple right hands to the head. Right, your equilibrium's a little bit shaky. Um, but you know that's uh, that's what Dobronx is going to do. He's going to touch it to the body. He's going to put that straight right hand on your head. You got a nice left hook, a lot of tools. So if you try to respond, and this is what I said before, like when Gagey gets hit, his response is to come back and go big, and sometimes it's to his own detriment. 
and has has him spinning around all over the place. <laughs> but but Oliveira is an exceptional tactile fighter. You know, you're right when you when you say he leads you, because when he has a hold of you, he'll pull you one way and let you be that pivot point, right? And he'll 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 give you an exit, and then he'll find knees to the body when you feel like walking through that fucking exit door. You feel like you're on your way out, and he just shifts his hips. And shows you like a major D and says, Hey, here you go. And he needs you to the body, needs you to the body. And he only gets in two. And then while you're kind of pulling out, he'll lead you more and they'll put a right hand right behind it. And uh, he, in some of those muddier instances, he was doing that to Gagey. Uh, but every once in a while, Gagey would crack him with something big, even though Gagey had already eaten three or four and then eaten some body shots anyway, which really made it a very interesting fight. You know? Um, so, so with Oliveira and that, that, that tactile style and finding those knees to body, the interesting with, with uh, Charles Oliveira 2.0 is if you consider the torso is, is, is center mass, right? Um, it's also a very large surface area with some pretty vital organs and shit inside. So I think it makes sense for a fighter that may not have the best vision to go center mass maybe find the solar plexus, liver, kidney, lung, spleen, or whatever else the body needs to function. And remind your opponent's body that knees really fucking hurt, even if not thrown that hard. They they really hurt, and they can shake things up inside. And again, it's more of um, why wrestlers don't do this more. I don't quite understand. But Oliveira and Felder do it as well as anybody. Give you a little bit of space or have you try to fight through a position. And when you do and you try to improve and you feel like, like you have space to move, they take that space away normally with a knee to the body. And until it folds someone over, it doesn't look pretty. They, they, they hurt and they, they pay off. They're just putting money in the bank, You're banking those shots to the body. And Oliveira seems to do that in every fight now. He's always investing in the body, whether it's the, um, or those straight kicks, excuse me, or those, uh, those knees to the body. And I love seeing it. Also, the range of, Bronx's knees is much greater than most MMA fighters. I think Gaethje wasn't used to that, right? Because MMA fighters that Gaethje has fought, they just throw it up the middle. Maybe they could aim it a little bit to the left or to the right. Whereas where you're standing in front of Bronx and where he could hit his knee is a much greater area. Not only can he throw his knees like uppercuts or Superman punches or like a straight, but he could also swing them like a hook. He can come through the side and hit you like a short hook, or you're like, I'm too far away. I'm exited. You can't hit me. And he could throw it like a wide hook, right? And the way he throws it, it's the right way. You know, it hurts because of the way it bounces off the body comes back instead of the way some people have to really put a lot of effort throwing the knee. And then you see them like putting their own knee down. He just lets his knee go limp. And the rebound is what puts his foot down. That's how you know the knee hurts. The diaphragm and the rib cage are ask, acting as a spring, right? And it's like <laughs> throwing the ball into the net and having it bounce back. And it's like, oh, that knee comes up, boom, and it comes back down, and he resets that position. And you'll see him do things like elbow off it or continue to work that collar tie or dig an underhook post on the face and then throw another knee or just continue to work, work a sequence of offense from there. It's constant offense. Yep, it is a continuation of offense, and he's not hunting one thing. He's letting one, one, uh, one style of offense open up another. He is not tethered to any specific technique. He is taking what's available, and the blend of it 
is really fun to watch from, from a coaching perspective. I just like it. I just see shit. Like he's, it's a, he, like he's dancing in there. It looks like those video games where a character dazes you and then does like a 20 hit combo. Yeah, it looks like a fight scene sometimes from like They Live. Remember, <laughs> remember those fight scenes at Roddy Piper? And you're like, no, he's not going to hit that. Oh, no. He, it, it was always something happening. There was never any any dead time. Like everything, everything led to something else. It's very sequential and it's very frustrating because like Gagey likes to fight. You hit me, I hit you. You hit me, I hit you. You hit me, bang, bang, bang. I throw three hooks, you fall down. That's how he fights. That's usually how he wins. Whenever someone's not giving you that time to reset, regroup, or isn't involved in that 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 tennis match of you punch, I punch, you punch, I punch, um, it's hard to get your rhythm, and you start seeing some of the things we saw. You know the the lack of timing versus the improved timing just throughout the first three minutes of the fight. Now, one crafty move I liked was how Oliveira kept going for guillotines in the clinch to make Gaethje pop his head up. And when he did, there was either a hook, a knee, or an elbow waiting for him. Or when Gaethje tried to disengage from the clinch or from the guillotine and try to push off, usually what is left, Dubronx would come over the top with his right. How good and clever is that? It was outstanding. Again, it's taking what is available based on what your opponent does. You shove his head down. He doesn't want it down because he, you know, he knows he wants to avoid your front headlock series. He wants to avoid your Darce, your Anaconda, your, your guillotine. And you just ride it up. And whenever he, he ride, you ride up his pressure in order to improve that head position, bang, there's an elbow there. Bang, there's a hook there. Oh, his head comes up. The body is exposed. Bang, there's a knee there. And it's a, it's, it's, a, a tactic that is born of repetition and fight IQ. So it's a combination of good coaching, good drilling, and just an overall solid understanding of fighting that not every gifted fighter necessarily has. So he has a combination of like legit physical skills with also, also a strong understanding of how to fight sequentially and the improved cardio to pull that shit off. Because you're, and someone someone said this on the Twitter on the Twitters the other day, is your coaching is only good as your fighter's ability to execute it. If you call for something that is obvious or something that is not obvious, but yet outstanding tactically, and your fighter's just not physically able to, to pull it off because they're either too tired or they don't have it in their arsenal, it means nothing. Right. So understanding what your fighter's capable of, the the 145 pound. Charles Oliveira that couldn't fight three rounds hard probably wouldn't be able to fight like this sequentially because it, it, it can wear you out in decision making is built on sort of having the wherewithal and composure that is born of of solid cardio and good conditioning so one of the five says my my conditioning is my confidence yes absolutely like your ability to make good decisions when you're tired borderline exhausted is compromised because there's always that consideration of can I get my hand back to my face if I even do hit his you know can I get my can I maintain my stance if I try to throw a head kick when my legs are this juiced like what am I going to do you know uh Dubronx has the cardio to back it up these days so it's a it's a it's a perfect storm for this 11 fight win streak I really I really wonder if people appreciate it to the love 
this the level of accomplishment that it really is and appreciate it to the degree that they should. Yeah, I mean, the strength of schedule, I don't know if people count that in. And I think looking at a strength of schedule, we have to start talking about him in the pound for pound list. I would think so, right? Yeah. Especially when you know everyone that he's fought is dangerous. Every one of them is dangerous. And he's dispatching of all of them. And it's not like he wasn't faced with adversity at any of them. So he, he persevered. He, these are dangerous fighters that at least compromise him for a second, that find a shot. He's getting dropped in the first round almost every time. And he's still finding a way to win and win in an impressive fashion. And also, we have to point out that if he wasn't fighting the top of the tier, he's not going to get dropped like that. He's getting dropped like that because the people he's fighting are that good. But if he was fighting like people who are not in the top five, he would just be walking through most of them, I think. Oh, yeah. Especially with his array of offense now, his varied attacks, for sure. Now, it seemed for the most part, Oliveira had a read on Gaethje's best punch, the right overhand, because whenever Gaethje spread his legs out and dipped his head, he knew the punch was coming and would try to beat him to it with a shorter right punch. The punch Oliveira seemed to have a problem with was Gaethje's uppercuts. And Gaethje was also looking for shots as Du Bronx was trying to collar tie, to your point. So the collar tie seems like a gift and a curse where you can do a lot from it, but it also leaves you susceptible to short shots because your hands are away from your face. Yeah, they're away from your face and they're occupied, right? So you're not, you're not, you're not punching with that hand. Um, so it takes one weapon um, out of the arsenal. Wrestlers love that close quarters. They're strong in there. Um, there's this this ability to control the head. You control the head, and then they try to to fight out. And you you feel pressure, pressure release. You push, they respond, and they pull back. And you can follow that in. You can follow that stuff in with like you were talking about uh, hunting those those guillotines from the front headlock position, and then riding it up, bang, throwing an elbow. The Gagey doesn't really do that except to punch. And it, it works for him. And it works so well that he actually dropped Charles Oliveira twice in a minute. He dropped the best fighter in the world at 155 pounds in a minute, twice. So it's, it's a really great skill that works well for him. But what you start to see is that there's some vulnerabilities with it um, if you are not all that varied in your approach and in your attack um, and and like you're using one arm to control the head which starts to wear on that arm and the other arm to punch which starts to wear on that arm and once you're a little arm weary and your arms are a little heavy then you know what what's your what's your secondary attack uh, random low leg kicks okay you know i mean that's going to work but you're fighting the, the best guy in the world you might want to set those up with your hands and if they're starting to tire a little bit no, it. I'm not saying it was an all-or-nothing approach from from Gagey, but I would think that a little more patience and a little more variety, he might be able to find maybe a third knockdown rather than like what did I say? Uh, tie, uppercut, left hook, uh, leg kick, rinse and repeat. I know he's he's more, he's more than that, but. You know, you got you got a guy who's durable. You got to think that doing things harder to the point where you're punching and throwing a left hook that misses easily by the length of two fucking football fields and you fall <laughs> flat in your face, that maybe maybe you might want to settle in a little bit. You know, that's just my thing. A note to our loyal listeners: 
If you love the Southpaw project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Now, why I think Oliveira gets dropped is because he can't see the punches that hurt him, which is why he has so many maneuvers on auto dial to keep him safe. What Gaethje did was to move further into Oliveira's blind side with his slips and movements to hide the punch. So if he can't see the punches coming, what I like to see Oliveira do is maybe end his combinations with weaves and exits. I'd say roll with the shots, but he'd have to be able to see the shots to roll with them. So I think if he has so many moves on auto dial, we just discussed how all those moves are all offensive moves. It would also be nice for him to also set up some defensive movements if he knows he can't see. So automatically put in an exit. Don't stay in the pocket for that long. You know, try to duck under some of these hooks, even if you don't know if they're coming. You know, that's one good thing that Rose Namajunas does is whether a hook is coming or not, she's weaving away from an imaginary hook regardless when she's done with her combinations, right? So that's something that I'd love to see Oliveira do. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, Rose does it incredibly well. And sometimes when I say Oliveira has, I don't want to say a weakness in the pocket, but he definitely has a vulnerability. He's very long. So like I said, you, you can punch on the V. He stands very upright and he's got a relatively large head. So he's, he's hittable. Sometimes whenever he misses, he misses, even when he, when he lands, he punches through or off the side of your head and he extends so well that sometimes he'll find himself out of position. And I, I think he'd be well served. And some of those sequences that aren't against the cage, instead of just waiting for your opponent to hook back and find big shots. I don't want to necessarily say angle off, but you can use that collar tie in a push pull and you can kind of ride their, their motion there. If you, if you pull me into to you, my natural inclination is going to be to pull back. So when I pull back, I, you know, when they pull back, he could just shove them and create a little bit of distance and give them an exit. He can kick off that exit or he can continue to, to lead them into a right hand because once they start to, to give up ground, Especially these guys at 155 that like to be hyper aggressive. The second they get pushed away, they want to they want to load up and double hop back into range. Fucking, you find that right hand again, bang, put it on them. Uh, you don't have to just let everything get sloppy and jumbled inside all the time. You, know, you can find some of that stuff at range, and you can dictate that. Especially if you're the longer fighter. Now, what seems to save Oliveira a lot after he's hurt is his stance and footwork. He stays postured and keeps changing angles so his opponent can't zone in on him and constantly shows feints to buy himself some time. He also stays heavy on his back foot so he can step back quickly if he needs to with his front leg. All this kept Gaethje flinching, sort of like he did against Habib Nurmagomedov. But Gaethje dropping down also became predictable because you know Gaethje isn't going to shoot. So Dubronx would stand his ground and come over the top with his right every time Gaethje did that. Or time his own uppercut, which he also caught several times. Though Dubronx visibly was hurt more times before the end of bleeding, he was still outlanding Gaethje the whole time. Like really fucking him up. I think the way Dubronx gets hurt sometimes 
takes away from the totality of damage he's putting on against his opponents. Yeah, I think after a culmination of like headshots, body shots, headshot, body shots, um, over and over and over, and sometimes he the, the the clinch is also very very draining. That you start to and I think I said this before. I think uh, Dubronx is is physically strong for like a long body type for like more of a slender body type because he he doesn't have a problem pushing around anybody in there. Um, and you know and you know Gagey is not a weak man. He's a he's a, a Division One All American. He's a strong human being, and you know there's just there's just this ability for um, for Oliveira to, to sort of like move you and do a a variety of attacks. And when you do that, you have people. Would you say flinching that sort of response because you're not just looking for hands and you're looking. For, you got to be aware of the knees. You got to be aware of the elbows, but where Gaethje, I think, does this better than anybody else is sort of like blindly throws hooks that land. And he's been doing it since the PFL, since World Series of Fighting. It always seems to land for him. So it's like, I don't know if he's got sonar or radar. He fucking is a bat. But he he finds shots that otherwise I don't think a normal fighter would or should. Um, And he, he does that in close. But again, there's a bit of a vulnerability to that when... um to get those shots off, if your opponent is durable enough, and think about his losses, uh, not counting Habib, but it was because Eddie and Dustin were too durable with that Rock'em Sock'em style, and Gagey just started to fade. And then they were able to take over. And what Oliveira does that I don't think a lot of people are giving credit to, or enough credit to, is his work to the body. And whether, whether or not anyone wants to admit it, and I know Gagey's not going to be on the Twitter or the, the Instagram talking about um, how, how good uh, uh, Oliveira is at, at poking holes in his gas tank. But when you're a power puncher and you've been kicked in the stomach eight times in two minutes, <laughs> <laughs> it, it could take something away from you. And we even need in the, we even need in the ribs. And you need that for rotational force. But that muscle starts to spasm because it has to protect the organs, the organs that help us breathe, the organs that help us filter out um, toxins, the organs that help us shit, the organs that help us just the very important things inside us. So when that body starts to tighten up, breathing becomes labored, rotating becomes labored, everything becomes labored. I liked how Oliveira would move into range against Gaethje by dodging the leg kick, which put Gaethje out of position but also unaware how close Dubronx is. And then Dubronx would initiate from there. Removing that kick as a weapon really hurt Gaethje. And to your point, it became even more predictable. Yeah, for sure. And Gaethje landed too early, but then you started to see Oliveira be able to be able to time those big, heavy kicks. And the, the more labored those movements become, the easier it is to see. And think about it, like at the two minute and 45 second mark, when Gagey lowers his level and throws a jab to Oliveira's body, right? Dubronx throws a nice tight right hand that I think stunned, stunned Gagey. And I didn't see the commentators pick up on it. Maybe they did, and I just didn't, I didn't really hear it. But I think, I think it really stunned Gagey. And then Gagey windmills like the most telegraphed overhand right that Oliveira easily blocks. And then Gagey follows it up with like that left hook to nowhere where he falls down after throwing it. And once that happened, 
I mean, there wasn't much left in the fight after that. <laughs> and I think I think it's pretty telling, at least to me, that you know Charles realized that Gagey goes big and hard every time that Gagey gets clipped, and that's the danger when you stun Gagey. He's going to hurt you back probably if you're sticking around in range and you're not disciplined. That's the danger. So because uh, Gagey doesn't typically give ground, he returns big and usually wide or maybe with an uppercut. If you get a chance to watch at the two minute, 45 second mark again, you'll see that when Gagey misses that big left hook and falls, it's because after that hard block of the overhand right by Oliveira, Oliveira then hits a little drop step and just isn't there to be hit by another looping punch, which Gagey, that that was Gagey's path to victory. And Oliveira picked up on that pattern. I think that's sort of what set up the beginning of the end. And you talk about being able to to make in-fight adjustments, especially whenever if the fight is that violent, that fast-paced, and that chaotic with so much happening against someone as dangerous as Justin Gagey, I mean, really all the credit to Charles Oliveira to be able to, to make those real-time decisions and just pull off a really, really impressive victory after getting dropped twice. I mean, all of it just works out to be really, really impressive stuff. Didn't you feel like you saw Du Bronx get more confident the more reads he got? Like towards the end, it seemed like Du Bronx felt like he was invincible, even though he had been dropped twice, because now he was like, I know everything you're about to do. That's perfectly stated. Like, that's how I was going to sum up my next argument. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that's it. He saw a lot of data, a lot of, of, lot of input. And like, all, that, all that information he processed. And then he's just like, hey, I, I know I can hit this kid. And every time I do, he's going to respond big. So I'm going to make a miss. Then when he starts missing, and he's all over the place. I know where he's going to be. And what do they say? What was it? If behavior is predictable, it is um, it is controllable. Right. So once once you can predict where he's going to be based on his response to the stimuli you've provided, well, then you can bait him. And now if you can bait him, you can control him. You can control him. Just now, all you have to do is avoid getting hit by the big stuff, which certainly is easier said than done. You know, Monday morning quarterback in this thing, a lot easier than, than in real time trying to pick up on that shit. But we saw it firsthand that, um, that Charles Oliveira was able to do just that. Yeah, towards the end, it just started turning into a sparring match for Du Bronx, where he's like, oh, okay, now this is a guy I could beat up in the gym whenever I want. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna let him swing and miss, and then I'm gonna cru- I'm gonna crush him with a right hand, and then, and then he's gonna fall, and I'm gonna I'm gonna choke him out. Like that's what's that's what's coming. So let's talk about that then, because we've been talking about the final sequence. So, Jason, what set up the final sequence that ended the fight for Du Bronx? How did he finally drop Gaethje when it seemed like Gaethje was more durable and more powerful, seemingly when we were first watching this live? Well, I think it, what we just touched on was that Oliveira knew that he could find that right hand. And it, I think it starts at two minutes and 45 seconds. Now, G- Gagey all of a sudden throws, uh, lowers his level and throws a nice jab to the body, which was, which was like a well-thought tactical maneuver. And Dubronx just turned like a little right-hand piston shot. Boom. Popped him in the head. Back, stung him with that right hand. He stumbled for a second, but he got up so quickly, I think it was hard to catch in the moment. Yeah, and that's what 
that's what Gagey does. And because he's like all piss and vinegar, what he <laughs> needs to do, to do is right. So he just needs to be a little more tact, uh, tactical, take a step back and regroup, but he doesn't want to. And he also tends to be very dangerous when he's hurt. Uh, and, and he didn't, but at that point, Charles had a beat on him. He had his number, he had his timing. And uh, I think when you saw him throw that left hook and sort of fall flat, that like that was that was the beginning of the end. He knew that if if he hit him, he could hurt him. And it, once he hit him, don't be around for that that big counter shot, that return fire from Gagey, and you'll be all right. And then he was like the the next minute was just um, Oliveira being like patient, but at the same time in his face, found another right hand. That really rocked Gagey. And Gagey's got a chin, man. He ate a lot of them. Both these guys. There was a lot, lot of power punching. Oh, yeah. It was brutal. <laughs> In the three minute fight or whatever it was, a lot happened. A lot of aggression, a lot of power. And, uh, you know, found that right hand and then just didn't get wild and knew that in any grappling sequence is going to favor uh, New Bronx. And he did his thing, broke the back, found the choke. Gagey did a decent enough job of fighting the hands, but no. Once once he slipped and those hands came back, or those, those hands came back up and they got under the chin, it didn't matter. Now the first shot that rocked Gagey was a right counter off the calf kick. That's also the same shot that set up the final exchange that you're talking about, which led to the choke. So it seems that was the plan, and that shot seemed to be there all night for him, which is to lift your leg up when Gaethje goes for the calf kick and then counter with the right. And so going forward, I wonder if that's going to continue to be an opening for Gaethje for future opponents. Well, Gaethje's pretty quick with that kick, right? And he's like sort of spastic with it and wild, but he he throws it with quickness. And his hands are so dangerous that he sort of disguises the, the kick in a little bit with his upper body movement. So the, the, the key is, are they quick enough to do that themselves and do they have the pocket presence not to get hit because even though Dubronx is is pretty solid with his pocket presence he still got dropped twice it's a dangerous game it is and you that's what you tell your fight it's what you tell your fighters to do to pay attention to it and let's do it but like again it's you could do everything right with those little gloves sneak in they in one of those wild shots at you behind the ear as hard as Gagey hits um you could do everything correctly, and it's a matter of inches at that point. You could still be walking on deer legs. I think you're right, because I don't know if other fighters could replicate what Dubronx did, because not only because of the timing, but the way he checked the kick, which isn't normal. Most people would either turn their foot out or lift their leg and turn their shin out. But Dubronx didn't do either of those. What he did was lift his leg and then basically tuck his leg like his heel to his ass. So his leg was completely not there. So unlike usual, to your point, right? He's fast, but Gaethje will still hit something even if it's checked and then get back into position where because the leg was completely not there, he would just spin around, right? And that's how Dubronx would, he would kind of throw this jab, but it was more of a jab to kind of touch Gaethje on the shoulder. And then he would come in with that short right and connect after the missed kick. So yeah, I don't know if other fighters could do that because 
Gaethje normally doesn't spin 360 when he kicks like that. He was only doing that because the leg was completely not there. It wasn't even a check. He just completely removed his leg from getting kicked. Yeah, we saw out, uh, Jose Aldo start doing that a little bit more. And it, it speaks to like Jose's athleticism um, and reflexes at, at a more advanced age at a lighter weight class too. But I think you got to start to give some, some real credit to the, the reflexes and athleticism of some of these, some of these fighters. And uh, that, that's something that I think is missed on, on Charles Oliveira. He's very, very athletic. Um, he just, because he's, he's taller and longer, but he's, he's got quickness. He's got good body mechanics. He learned to, to wrestle pretty well. Um, yeah, it's a sport of mixed martial arts and you need to do that, but he's hitting body locks on, on guys who have like legit D1 wrestling and he's still taking them down. So you know, the understanding that athleticism, uh, speed, uh, power, strength, all things are really important in, in fighting. So like as good as, as good as Oliveira's technique has become, he's still got the physical tools and to accompany those skills and be a real fucking problem. He's becoming actually more muscular as he's getting older too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he's starting to realize that there is a little more durability whenever you're when you're not just connective tissue, when you have a little bit of muscle to support it as well, right? You just nothing about ligaments and tendons. So I think that I think that might be his thinking. Or who knows? Uh, I'm just I I am pleased to see someone fight with with technique and strategy, while at the same time being a world beater and just immensely entertaining. That's that's what I really really want to see. And then you strip that motherfucker of his title, like boo to all of you, <laughs> and boo to everyone in Arizona for fucking booing him. Everybody, I just shame on you all, man. You you're witnessing greatness, and all you can do is boo because he doesn't have an American flag behind him. Just stop it. It's silliness. I mean, one of the most exciting fighters of all time. Absolutely. Like, think of the gifts he's given us. <laughs> You're going to boo that? You're going to boo that? He, he makes all your favorite fighters better because they have to rise to the occasion. And even if, they, if someone does come in and beat them, it's going to be because they're doing good shit. And that, that changes the landscape for, for everybody. And it gives us something more to analyze in the swang and bangers with the just bleeders. Because the days, the days of these, what do I call them, commoditized fighters that are easily replicated. It's the, basically the, the American education system. We don't want, <laughs> right? We don't want creative thinkers. We don't want critical thinkers who think outside the box. We want plug and play motherfuckers that we can put into a fucking desk job for 40 grand a year and maybe decent benefits. Maybe, maybe someone that is controllable and, and just cogs in the fucking machine. These fighters that are so easily replicated would get destroyed by someone with the makeup of Char- and ability of Charles Dubronx Oliveira. He would fucking ruin them. He would fucking ruin them, <laughs> and no doubt. And that's what happens when you do it the right way with the right fighter. In this fight, and also in the Nurmagomedov fight, Gaethje showed that when he's tired, his footwork falls apart. But also, in this fight, Testament to Dubronx, he was planting all sorts of reactions into Gaethje. So by the end, Dubronx hits him off the calf kick, collar ties from Gaethje pushing off, 
which Dubronx was taking advantage of all night. And also whenever Gaethje is popping his head up. And now at the end, Gaethje was doing all of this while squared up and walking backwards, which left him completely defenseless for a right straight, which is textbook perfect from Oliveira. I mean, his hooks, straights, knees, uppercuts, all clean, straight lines. Yeah, no wasted energy, no tells. And those right hands without tells, without flaring out the elbow, without a wind up, just twisting, rotating, punching like a piston, or what those were the different, different, those were the difference makers in this fight. And he would find them um, by exploiting Justin Gagey where he's, where he's dangerous, but also vulnerable. That's the thing. Those vulnerabilities, especially when you pick up on them, are also the, the same things that Gagey does. Um, it has success with wild looping shots. Um, so you have to be, you have to be on top of your game. If you're going to say, I'm going to bait him to throw these and I'm going to catch him when he does, because you're, you're basically trying to hit a home run out of the air with your home run. <laughs> and he's able to fucking do that. Man. And then, and it's a lot of guts from, uh, from Oliveira and his team to take to take that approach and i mean they, i think they know, they know what his skill set really is prior to his streak it must have been the most frustrating thing in the world knowing you're working with someone of this 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 ability but falling short now now this this is the fruits of their labor and to see to see something this pretty you know it's got to make you smile you know we got to got to make you feel pretty good uh and uh, a fight sport that is as problematic as it is entertaining, let's say. So seeing it, I love it. I can't, I, you know, I don't want to sound like too much of a Charles Oliveira stand because uh, I want to leave that to you, but I'm, I'm a fan. I really am. <laughs> I, just like, I just like how he and his team do it. I really do. I mean, talking about some of the technique, let's talk about the way Dubronx took Gaethje's back because he didn't just take his back. This is something that, kind of gets boring sometimes as fighters just take the back and they're just fighting for the choke or whatever, right? But Dubronx doesn't do that. He took the back and he beat him up while having the back. It was some brutal ground and pound from the back before he went for a reverse triangle. You don't see that type of ground and pound from the back very often or at all, unless is Charles Oliveira, right? He was like hitting him with elbows and hammer fists and punches. I think he was like, rocking him from there before he went for the reverse triangle. Then Gaethje did like the slowest rollout to escape. You know, wrestlers, you would think they would roll to their belly and get up really quick, but this was like really slow, which gave Dubronx plenty of time to take the back again. But what I love about how Dubronx takes the back and is part of why he has the most subs in the UFC is he goes for the neck first before he secures position. Most people try to get the body triangle first, then work for the neck. That's been sort of the new meta that we've been seeing. But Oliveira does the opposite. He goes for the choke and having a deep choke is how he gets his legs in position. So that choke was sunk in beyond defense before he had his legs triangle. Gaethje was fucked. Then you look at Dubronx's face as he's squeezing and he's not grimacing like a lot of fighters do when they're putting on the choke. 
it should be your opponent grimacing, not the person choking, right? He has the most relaxed looking face because he's not putting in a bunch of strength. He's not burning his arms out. He's doing the slow squeeze without too much energy. So he could squeeze like this for minutes if he had to, the way you're taught to do, right? That again, like other things Du Bronx does, is the right proper way to do a rear naked choke, a blood choke, just a constant, consistent squeeze. How does this dude keep getting better with age? I am just in awe. Well, I, I think that he, before I think he was just a physical phenom that took to jujitsu so well. He had some real nice, real nice stuff, uh, but he was grappling first and foremost. And he would get submitted too. Yeah, which is crazy because you look back at those fights, you're like, "How? There's no way, no way." Like, he's so far above and beyond what in his career right now than the the fights he lost by submission or even the ones that he just had any bit of difficulty in. And he he's just he's he's so much better than that. It's continuing to do the little things right. And sometimes when you're that good, that early, that young, you don't have to do the little things right and you still win. But the good motherfuckers are going to make you pay for it. You know, you got to to be at the top of this game, at the top of that division, you have to do the little things right. That, in, that includes like being economical with your your energy stores while you're while you're while you're choking somebody. You do it right all the time. You know, you you at least have a command of all the rules before you break them. And now you're seeing like a really really well positioned high guard. And understand that there's some limitations to his vision, so he fights a certain way, and uh, a fight that has a fluidity and is sequential in a continuation of offense that you get through drilling. And I think the more you drill that stuff, so what is it? It's um, skill acquisition, skill refinement, skill ownership, right? So he now he owns some of those skills to where. You can be in there against someone as dangerous uh, as and as aggressive as Justin Gagey, and you can still hit pretty shit. You can still find it because now you own those techniques. You're not thinking about it. You're just sort of like taking the data and you're interpreting it in real time. And you see him throw that left hook and he's coming wide, but you come tight with your longer punch, which is the right hand, but it's a straighter punch. The first 15 seconds of a fight, 10 seconds of a fight, yours lands. His grazes, he's hurt. You know, those things, those things are really, really important, especially if you want to stay at the top and continue a streak. Winning 11 fights in the 155-pound division, with, which is just a, a murderous row from top to bottom, and everyone in the top 15 has something that would make them a potential. Like, some of these guys could lose to other, other folks just in the division just because it's, it's so deep. And sometimes shit just happens. For that shit not to have happened in 11 fights is really impressive. It means you're doing the little things right. And a lot of times, once you hit that five, six, seven, eight fight win streak, you stop thinking that you have to listen to coaches, that you have to stay tight with technique. You start to think that you're invulnerable, that you're, that you're invulnerable. But what you want to, to do is continue the same way. They got you there. The same eyes, the same ears, the same, the same listening, the same uh, attention to detail that got you to that point will keep you at the top rather than just thinking 
oh, what I did to make me good was just a process that I can abandon now that I'm here. No, maintenance is a motherfucker. Remember that. Maintenance is a motherfucker. So you need to continue to be improving. Continue to maintain, but continue to improve. Understand where you are, where you want to be, but just as importantly, where the competition is if you want to stay at the top of this game. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com slash southpawpod Now, as much as Gaethje is known for his kicks, it was Oliveira who was outkicking him. And also, Nurmagomedov really showed that Gaethje is open to front kicks to the stomach, which Bronx also used. Which did two things. Something you brought up, which was to gas Gaethje. But the other thing is to stand Gaethje upright, where he can't load up his punches. Because he has shorter reach, Gaethje really needs to drop down to spring forward with his right. But when he's upright, his punches can't really reach you, and he's mostly defenseless. So once Dubronx got him standing more upright, it was much easier for Dubronx to just take a step back or just lean back a little bit, and Gaethje would be swinging at nothing. Yeah, Gaethje does have those alligator arms. They're not very long. He doesn't have huge reach. And you're right. He does sort of come like it with either a little bit of a, like a, a step wind up with that overhand right, or a turn and rip to make up that difference with a with a walking left hook. Or after he reaches for that that head coming with the big uppercut, like everything is a big dynamic movement to try to make up that distance. And he gets he gets a lot of torque on those shots because he's coming forward so hard. But if he can't get through those those straight kicks down the middle and he is more upright you know he's not going to win a jab fast against mm-hmm. anybody except maybe except maybe sean shirk <laughs> that's fucking hit <laughs> um so it, it forces him to fight a different way and if he can't make up that distance um i think you get what i i uh, alluded to at the two minute and 45 second mark when he punched himself and he he fell afterwards because he's coming big and heavy and at that point, Oliveira had his timing and was picking up on you know, what he was trying to do to make up that distance, especially when you start to get a little bit fatigued. Even if it's just a fraction of a second, it's we're talking about guys who are the upper echelon of professional mixed martial arts. Their visual acuity, maybe not the best visually like in terms of like, reading numbers on a chart, but if they see some movement coming at them, their response is programmed to move and respond with something. So if you start throwing an overhand right from eight feet away and following it up with a huge left hook, I promise you, if Oliveira has a beat on you, he's not going to get hit with either one of them. So you got to come up with something a little bit different. And I didn't see Whitman's team necessarily having a plan B if shit didn't go their way. I don't know if you caught this or not. And I don't know if this is intentional or not, but Bronx, when he jumped guard on Gaethje in the middle of the fight, he had a power underhook on Gaethje's right arm and Gaethje's head was under Oliveira's armpit. 
So when they hit the mat, Gaethje basically spiked his own head into the mat. And if you watch it in slow-mo, it's pretty bad. So even when Gaethje pulls back, he's not like all there. That's why he's not even punching and he just steps out. And so I don't know if that was just like an accident or the Bronx was trying to legally hit a DDT. (laughs) Yeah, like land a DDT or not. But I guess Gaethje could have stayed standing and held him up. But Gaethje went down too. So he basically spiked his own head. Well, did you see how how Oliveira like thrust himself down? He had that grip so tight that he thrust himself down. It looked like Gaethje did try to stay up a little bit. Yeah, he didn't jump into him. He jumped backwards. Yeah, which is why uh, Oliveira lost the control from the bottom position. And Gaethje was able to get back to his feet. But I missed the DDT, but I noticed like how with such thrust he was able to throw himself back oh, my fucking brother's a ddt me man <laughs> <laughs> dude that's dangerous uh, it's so dangerous I'm, i I wonder why i've had uh cervical disc replacement at c56 <laughs> i mean we were talking about that with uh tony ferguson right with that up kick people were just talking about the knockout but you and i we both have bad necks we were immediately texting each other back and forth talking about possible permanent neck damage yeah, I'm like, get him an MRI, man. Someone get him checked. Because like, it was a uh, it was a ugly fall. Yeah. Chandler, I, I got I got my <laughs> I got my problems with Michael Chandler, but man, he is fun to watch fight. And that kick, it didn't look like it was physically possible for a man of his height at that distance and that angle to have ever landed that kick to the point where like I don't know if my brain shut off because it didn't think it was supposed to happen, but I didn't see it either. Uh, no. I missed it. I had to wait for the replay. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Because it was that fast. He threw it that fast. It, it, it didn't look like it was, he was even in position to, to land that. And this, it was weird because he anticipated the angle when he kicked to where he was sliding. And actually, a thing, uh, an awkward thing of beauty, man. <laughs> it really was. I mean, first of all, right? At his height, everything you described, like if you, when it showed again in replay, he basically did the splits. That's not only how high, but how far he had to reach. Yeah, having watched the replay, I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Like, how does the brain say, oh, yeah, I'm going to throw a kick here. This, this is what I'm going to throw, and it's going to land. And it did. It landed as flush as, flush as any kind of kick up the middle like that has ever done. And it might as well be kicking 50-yard field goals with poor Tony Ferguson's fucking skull. Oh, man. I mean, poor Tony, right? Because he was looking good in that fight for a while until – he got taken down in the first round, right? And that's something that's been haunting him is how easily he gets taken down. And I know he worked a lot on wrestling, but the way Chandler took him down just so aggressively. And then once he did take him down, how hard of a time Ferguson seems to have with trying to get back up, not just in this fight, but against Bronx, against Benil Dariush, against Kevin Lee. He just has a hard time getting up. Well, that's the, the whole rubber guard thing, right? The rubber guard's not really meant. I mean, try getting up when you have someone in the lockdown. You're both locked down. It doesn't give you a whole lot of options to stand. So I think if you get good at that and you're you're getting your your reps in those positions, there needs to be an emphasis on on getting up, getting space, getting the fight back to your feet, or creating scrambles. Also, which you would think that the um, the rubber guard would would do, uh, but I think that he's just been the sport evolved while he was a little bit married to some of those techniques from the from the bottom position and you know uh, 
Maybe if he got taken down again, he would have gotten back up. But instead, his head got kicked in the stratosphere, and it played out a, a much different way than we had hoped, certainly than we anticipated. And uh, you know, he's forever enshrined as a, a highlight reel to Michael fucking Chandler of all people. I don't want him to stop fighting because I don't think he has it anymore. Like he showed in this fight, he could still hang, maybe not at the championship level, but he could be a journeyman for a while. If he had lost by decision, I could be like, maybe he could still keep fighting somewhere or maybe even at the UFC. But it's the kick is why I think he should retire. I think that kick did some permanent damage. And I think, I don't know if he can recover from that, especially, I don't know if he ever fully recovered from those knee surgeries. Like he doesn't move the same. He doesn't seem the same. And that neck in that replay, the way it whiplash, I'm like, dude, like something happened to that neck. Don't fight anymore. Agreed. And he was out for minutes. He was out for minutes. No, and think about it. 30 seconds is a long time. One, two, three, four, five. That doesn't seem like a long time, but if I were unconscious, you'd be really concerned, right? That's just five seconds. Now, he was unconscious for minutes. Now, the, the, you got to wonder, does the brain react to, to concussive type trauma like that? I mean, I've had fighters that once it's happened, um, the lights went out pretty easily. Um, and then it easier and easier uh, as they try to continue. So I think the the tough conversation uh, might need to be had unless he decides to take another year off and uh, is the UFC going to keep him if he does so. A lot of questions there. And I, I do like Tony Ferguson. I hope that um, that he can be the voice of young fighters getting into this game. It's crazy because he's such an oddball. Um, <laughs> But 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 he seems to have seen behind the curtain and made a home there for a while. And rather than be brought into the fold and told to behave, um, he's fought the good fight. And anyone that has um, the courage to do that, I'm going to be a fan of um, regardless. He's given his body to the sport because in this fight, right, his neck, his brain, his jaw, you know, his knees in uh, the accident that he's had in the past. And then against Du Bronx, like he got his arms broken, right? So yeah, it's not just his brain; it's so many injuries. I just don't know if his body can hang anymore. Yeah, and he's he's been he's been a, an absolute privilege to watch. You know the 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 style, the the aggression, the uh, emphasis on conditioning, the ability to strike and grapple. Um, a wrestler who doesn't have an overemphasis on takedowns that go nowhere. Just real, real good stuff from him. I, I wish him the best. And I, I was pulling for him the whole time. And I thought, I think I just texted you that he looks awkward as fuck, but he's also looking pretty money. And the next thing I know, this power double comes where I thought he was going to like open up a wormhole and drive him <laughs> through it. He hit it so goddamn hard. I thought he was going to drive him through the fence. <laughs> Chandler's an idiot, but he's a fucking animal. He got in so deep, right? Isn't that how that whole takedown happened? Wasn't because you know he just has a good double leg it was because he got so far into tony's hips right yeah he drove he drove through him even if like tony had even tried to sprawl at the exact right time he still would have been he would either have gone over <laughs> over michael chandler um if he was able to get his hips up high enough but if if you're not able to do that with uh, the power and explosiveness of chandler and the way he hits it and runs through your hips like, there's really not much you're going to do to stop that. You know, it, it, it's basically just a beautiful double leg in the form of a football tackle. And 
he ran his, he ran right through him. What was also interesting was like, to your point about being married to old techniques as the game is moving, he was right up against the fence. So most fighters, modern fighters, if you have them up against the fence, they're so good at wall walking to use the cage to get up, right? Where Tony didn't seem like he knew how to do that or cage wrestling is something that it didn't seem like he had ever learned. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit curious too. I'm like, you, you just you you were touching him with some good punches, and Chandler is definitely hittable. And I think uh, Tony Ferguson's power is a little underrated. He he hits you with those big paws, and everyone seems to get jacked up for it. It might just be like like a sharp, stiff style of punch, but those add up and they add up quickly. And and Tony's got. For as awkward as he is, he, he's fairly accurate with with some straight shit. And if he could have got, you know, a couple more, who knows how the fight would have played out? But instead, that kick, <laughs> fucking kick, man. <laughs> that kick might have changed Tony's life forever. Yeah, like physically. That's 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 what I worry about. But and this is the the fork in the road, right? I think if Tony wins that, he puts together a nice little streak, does some really good stuff, but. Having lost it and lost it the way he did, um, I think that fork in the road leads um, to a much more dire career path. Now, going back to Justin Gaethje, but not only Justin Gaethje, just in general with the Whitman fighters, Rose Namajunas and Justin Gaethje, who both fought that night, the way they both lost, the way both of those pupils reacted, they seemed really to be taken aback or fearful of being taken down. We saw. Chud Rose basically freeze up and do nothing because she was that afraid of the takedown. And with Gaethje, in his loss to Habib and in this fight, he looked panicked and gassed. And I feel like it has to be because Habib and Charles are both submission threats. So it seems like, I don't know if it's a pattern overall with Whitman fighters, but there's something there with takedowns. When I mean, other than Kamaru Usman, who's not really a Whitman fighter, he came over there later on. But seems like if you offer a takedown and submission threat against uh, Whitman fighters, that's a great advantage. It seems like that's not just a weakness for Justin Gaethje, but maybe just a weakness overall for Trevor Whitman. And I've been very high on Trevor Whitman as a coach, but he is ultimately a boxing coach. So I think maybe trying to do everything by himself and not having a good grappling coach you know, whenever you see him in the corner, it's just him, right? Or him and Pat Barry. Like, who's their main go-to grappling coach? So maybe that's a weakness in general is they need somebody who's like a good wrestler, uh, submission artist. I know they flew some people in for Justin Gaethje's camp, but the fact that you have to fly jiu-jitsu coaches in says you don't have somebody in-house. So that seems to be a weakness to me, just in the way their body language, their game planning, and just the fear that both Justin and Rose had of the takedown. Absolutely. It also has to be that whoever you're flying in has to be an extension of your game plan. They just can't be tangentially brought in and have some sort of abstract tangential approach that isn't directly tied into how your boxing centric style works for your fighter. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I wonder, and, and I don't know, and I don't want to be too critical, but I wonder, like, I would want someone I was working with day in and day out for for a, a boxing centric style when you, you have someone who is um like charles Oliveira on the ground or someone like, like when rose is fighting carla 
Esparza, if you don't want it to the ground, what do you see from my guy, the way he moves, or my fighter, the way she moves, that might make us vulnerable? And how do we work that in, in a, I don't know, well-communicated, organized approach that works cooperatively, that isn't just like doing one thing one way and then doing another thing that doesn't necessarily fit well with it. And, and that's what I wonder if you don't have that built into your camp. I would think that you would need that or eventually you just, you better hope you put away some of these grappler wrestlers or well, if, if everything, or if once you get to the ground, it's, it, it's all over, well then, Hey, you need to improve in those areas. And I think Whitman, Whitman does a good job of having his fighters punch correctly and find the target. And they have some defensive responsibility and their footwork is pretty decent, but sometimes you have to know real world adjustments, especially when, when facing a wrestler or a significant takedown threat. One last thing I want to mention is I love how Team Bronx all bleached their hair in solidarity with Bronx for his fights. It's such a cool thing to see from a team. And also it's just that kind of a funny, cool and kind of cute image where you see the most dangerous, violent, like scary champion. But then when his team all gathers together, right, they look like teenagers with bleached blonde hair. The whole, the whole crew, and what I, what I really, really enjoy is they all seem to care about each other. If you watch it, other fighters in their camp, like they're, they're looking, those assholes are looking up at the, the Jumbotron, hoping they're on TV. All these guys want to do is hug Charles Oliveira. That's it. They, just, they are proud of him. They are happy. They don't, it, it seems like that they, they care about him in that moment more than they even do about like the win. I, I get that they're 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 uh, inextricably tied together, but there's just there's just something really great about seeing someone beam because of what their their fighter is able to do. And you see it even even when they're walking out with them. They're just a really close, tight knit group. And maybe I'm picking up on, on things more visually because I can't I don't speak Portuguese, but I, I just really I really like their vibe. I like their, their camp's entire vibe. It seems like a parallel to what you were just mentioning with Team Whitman, where with them, obviously, Whitman is a great coach, but he's mostly a striking coach. And I think we've talked about it in the past where when Whitman is working, let's say, with Kamaru Usman, where Kamaru Usman also comes in with his own team of coaches, like the way Whitman can gel with those coaches is very good. He doesn't step on any toes, so he can work with other coaches. It's just that him, when it's just Team Whitman, his set of coaches or his team, rather than him as an accessory, unlike Bronx, where the coaches panel is all there, right? You have the grappling guy, you have the wrestling guy, you have the striking guy there. It's always the same people. He has his collaboration where Whitman seems to be missing some of those pieces. It's just mostly him. And I think that's another difference between the teams where Bronx actually has a team of coaches where Whitman fighters just have Whitman. They just have one coach. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there's there's a team that that all communicate and and they work in a, a well organized, strategic manner. I mean, if Team Whitman tried to do that camaraderie thing by changing the hair, it would just be Whitman changing his hair. That would be it because it's just one coach, right? Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, him and Pat Barry what, they, would they both shave their head? I mean, what would they do? <laughs> but that's only for uh, Chud Rose, right? Pat Barry isn't like the dedicated assistant coach for any of the other people. Right. So with Justin Gaethje, it's just 
Trevor Whitman and other lesser known fighters. It's just Trevor Whitman. So seems like that worked for a while and probably can still work at the highest level. But maybe if they rounded it out with some formalized assistant coaches where it's always the same people and he builds a rapport and they're all on the same page. It seems like there's a team weakness there. It, it did. It did a little bit. And the whole, the whole, Hey, we're doing great. We're doing great. Uh, we just need to put our foot on the gas a little more. No, you need to put on your foot, uh, your foot on the gas a lot more. They were basically lying to Rose. Yeah. And I get it. Like I get that the whole, uh, the, the, I don't want to call it Whitman's shtick, but his, like he's he's very zen. He walks in, he walks in slow, he doesn't over celebrate. But there was a time for some urgency, man. That whole laissez faire bullshit, you need to pick it up, bro. Like your fighter isn't fighting. And that's that's bad when you come to a fight without fighting. You need you need to say something. And sometimes like if Pat Barry, the husband, can't say it because like, I think you're allowed three corner men. So at, there's someone in there has to be spitting some truth a little bit. And you need to you need to level with your fighter. And I know that you want to be, or Trevor Whitman wants to be very zen, wants to keep the corner pretty calm. But if if someone said confidently that you were up four rounds to none, like you're all out of your fucking minds. Like someone needs to actually coach. Yeah. Maybe don't go all like full safe Saud, who's like very aggressive in the corner, but a little safe Saud right there would have been nice where he's just a little bit more urgent, a little bit more upset about how the fight is going. Yeah. Like you say, hey, you're better than you hurt everywhere. So if she does take you down, let's just get back up and make sure we're active enough with our double jab straight right, right? And we put it on her, score enough, because if even if she gets a takedown, she's not doing anything with it. So don't give her takedowns that much respect. You don't want to master the art of non-fighting. Like that's no good. It's, it's, it's a fight. I know you, like we're bringing strategy, but if your strategy is to have zero vulnerabilities, well, you get those zero vulnerabilities with zero offense. And that's what we got in that fight. And it was very, very difficult to watch. Yes, you want to be there in support of your fighter. And you need to advocate for your fighter. But you also need to spit some truth to your fighter um, when, it, when it is necessary. They underachieved in that aspect of it. And once you lose the title, it's actually harder to get the title back than to keep defending the title. Defending the title is also very difficult as well. But it's about the styles matchup, right? where now you lost to somebody and then this other person maybe beats that person. And now you as a challenger have a hard style matchup with the new champion, right? Whereas if you're the champion, maybe that person that you have a hard style matchup with, maybe you never fight them because they get eliminated by somebody else, right? But now you have to scrap with all those people. You're back in the hunt. So you're not filtered. As a challenger, you have different matchups than you do as a champion. You have more variety of who you might fight. So this might be a harder challenge for Rose Namajunas to become champion again. So let's say Carla Esparza fights Jessica Andrade next, and then Andrade beats her. Now Andrade is champion. Now if Rose Namajunas has to rematch Jessica Andrade for the third time, again for the title, yes, Rose Namajunas can beat her, but also there's a good chance that Jessica Andrade might beat her, right? Yeah, and the, <laughs> then you get the the like the top four. If you start, uh, so who are the top four in the weekend? So you got Joanna, you got Zhang Wiley, you got Carla Esparza as a champion, you got Marina Rodriguez, you got Mackenzie Dern, uh, you got Jessica Andrade, you have Yan Zhao Nan, and then you got people coming up like Amanda Hebas, 
Verna Jandaroba. And then you got somebody who fought earlier in the night, Lupita Godinez. So you have other fights that could be tough matchups for Rose Namajunas if she doesn't get an immediate rematch, right? So she doesn't want to go back into that murderer's row of challengers again. You know, it's much better for her to just stay champion and then just wait to see who rises to the top. And oftentimes, you know, the way things go, sometimes it's like, look how long Carla Sparza took to get a title shot because oftentimes the challengers are strikers, which is great for Rose Namajunas. But for you to get the title shot, you have to beat the wrestlers. So Rose Namajunas, if she has to be in the hunt again, she might have to fight more wrestlers, right? So yeah, it's a much better position to be champion than challenger. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She doesn't get to be as strategic in her approach to to a single fighter coming down the pike, right? She has to, it's it's all how it plays out. So, you know, not being champ uh, adds another layer of difficulty for her, especially. No, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what the matchups are because the top five are there, there's some good fight there's some good matchups in the top five of the 115 pound division. The women all bring different skills, and like, I could I could watch uh, Joanna and Wiley Zhang. Yeah, and they're fighting again. I'm I'm excited about that. I really am. I know everyone hates rematches, but I just I like good fights. So so I'm ha- I'm happy to see it. I thought they brought out the best in each other in their first fight. I think it'd be great to position any one of them for uh, the next shot at the title. And I think both of them match up especially, especially well with uh, Carla Sparza. And now we have more grapplers coming up, which the women's divisions have very much needed. And now that they're getting the grapplers, this not only tougher, but the grapplers now add a new level of danger, right? You have to be really good on the ground too. Yeah, I just I just hope that it doesn't turn into like I've got to be so defensive against uh, someone who has good good wrestling that it becomes what do I say a race to nowhere. They all there's just a whole lot of nothing. What we just saw with Carla and Rose, right? Like you have to understand that it's a it's a five round fight and that some strategy is going to be important, but there is a risk assessment that you take, and that if you don't, you can go completely risk averse, and, and but you you get the decision that you get. And no one, no one is scoring your feints or your six-inch drops or your lack of countering to two two missed jabs. Like, no one's scoring that. No one's scoring that at all. And whenever, like, yeah. So, and the, the commentary, which is normally really weird, and it was also strange again last night. But I thought they handled it like about as honest, professionally honest as you could have, because they're like, there's. How do you, if this is not a 10 10, like then 10 10s don't exist. And I think they were also putting the onus on Rose Namajunas in that she's the more versatile, skilled fighter. So she's the one who should be showing something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you can score. Again, I, I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. I want to understand what, what the thinking was in the corner. And I just thought the whole ultra reserved, ultra calm demeanor that with, with all that, not enough not enough actual coaching was getting through, you know, just saying that you're better than her everywhere. You need to, you need to do a little more. Um, it is just, that's just not enough. And at the end, Rose actually thought she won. She just thought she won. And then it was just strange to say, to have Pat Barry say, you hear them booing. That's because you're doing your job, but dude, not in the third round. <laughs> 
maybe round one, I'm okay with that. Even round two of a five-round fight, hey, man, we need to spank one so I want a little more activity at the end of the round. You know? Rose Namajunas can wrestle very, very well, You're, and she showed that with her offensive takedown late in the late in the fifth round. Why not do that like, throughout the fight? It, some strategy. If your strategy is nothing, nothing more than good defense, then I don't understand that. I just and I didn't hear any information being conveyed in the corner that would make me go, "Well, all right, I, I see what their strategy was." Now, I think it was just, "Hey, keep telling her she's better than her everywhere." which she probably is, except in just straight wrestling. But double leg for double leg, Rose appeared to be the much stronger athlete and very, very easily took her down once she beat her to her hips. So that's an approach you can take. But as a coaching staff and as a fighter, they all worked together to do very little. And that was, <laughs> that was, it was just very odd to see. Yeah, that isn't just on Rose Namajunas. That's a failure of the whole team. They all lost that fight, blew that fight as a team. Everybody is equally guilty on that. Yeah, it, it almost seemed like the two coaches had Stockholm Syndrome and didn't were afraid to make her mad and tell her anything, like give her any critique of her performance. I mean, it's almost like, you know how they always talk about her self-belief and she's the best, she's the best? Like, I think they're almost afraid to counteract that belief. Yeah, but you can still be the best fighter in the world and lose a round and you'd be told what you did wrong in that round. You could, but they didn't say that. <laughs> They, but they did not. And that coachability is normally one of the things that allow you to to rise to the top of your, your chosen athletic endeavor. And I, I, I have to wonder like, where that went. I don't understand their social dynamic. I don't understand. I don't understand their team dynamic. I'm just not in the room. Um, I was watching. And I was really confused. It was some of the worst coaching I've seen from possibly one of the best coaches in MMA. So it was just a very bizarre night overall. It was. It was. I, I felt like he was walking on eggshells, and it seemed very strange to me. And I was like, dude, are you a fucking hostage? Like, what's happening here <laughs> that you aren't allowed to speak your mind? I know you want to be cool. You're Mr. Cool. You're Mr. Calm. But fuck that. If, if there's a time for some urgency, it's when there are like single digits strike strikes. I don't know if it was landed or thrown. I mean, uh, if you're counting some of these feints as strikes, strikes thrown, like, I don't even get it. But it, the lack of offensive output and overall aggression was just it was confounding, to say the least. So how do you not say, hey, listen, at the very least, let's use a little bit of strategy. Let's put her against the cage. Let's cut her off a little bit, back her up against the cage, and at least show that we have some cage control. It's almost like they said, if you take one step forward, she's going to double leg you, and you're going to lose this fight, and no one will ever love you ever again. And she's like, holy shit, you're right. I, I can't go forward at all. Holy shit. And like, it, it, like once, you, once you're down that road, like how do you, how do you reinforce? No, no, no. Okay, we're just kidding. It's okay to go forward a little bit. Oh, so I'm not sure what happened. Um, it's it's the the curious case of uh, Pat Barry Whitman and Thug Chud, <laughs> whatever whatever happened there. I mean, there's another coach in there too, Greg Nelson, right? So I heard nothing from Greg. I heard nothing from Greg. He's the, like, there's some good minds in that corner. I mean, yes. That, right? I wonder then, to your point, so many good minds. Maybe there's too many captains on the ship, right, and not enough like crewmen. Yeah, yeah, could be, could be. I wonder. That's a really good consideration. 
I think we need to get uh, Detective Jake Shields on the case. And <laughs> so we were just going to talk about one fight, but then we ended up actually talking about a little bit of the Canelo Bivol fight, Tony Ferguson versus Michael Chandler, and also Rose Namajunas versus Carla Esparza. So we actually ended up covering a lot of fights, talking about most of the main card. So there's a lot of good stuff in here. I think there's a lot of good stuff for people who want to learn about fighting, people who want to not necessarily become fighters, but improve their own striking, grappling, MMA, or you're an amateur. I think there's a lot of good information on this episode. So definitely one to listen to more than once. I think watching Charles do Bronx Oliveira is always good if you're wanting to improve yourself as an MMA fighter because there's so many good things that Du Bronx does. But otherwise, that's it for this fight study. If you enjoy what we do, please support Southpaw Network on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Always a pleasure. <laughs>